You've heard all this, you as a human being. Why don't you change? <coughs> what prevents you? If each one of us asked that question, not verbally or merely intellectually as an entertainment, but ask that question most seriously and deeply, what's your answer? What's your answer to this problem that human beings have lived this way for millennia upon millennia? Why haven't they changed? Why haven't you, who are, the, who are listening now, why haven't you changed? You know, if you don't change, what the consequences are, you'll be national, nationalistic, you'll be tribal, insular, isolated, and therefore having no relationship globally, fighting, 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 building up more and more armaments, destroy each other. Now, why don't you, if you are at all serious in this matter, why don't you ask yourself that question? Why am I a human being who have been through all this? Why haven't I changed? What would be your answer? Either you are not serious, you want to live a very, very superficial life, and that superficiality temporarily satisfies you, or you really don't care, as long as you have immediate pleasures, immediate satisfactions, you really don't care. You don't care for your children if they, if they are murdered, if you really have no deep uh, love, affection for them, if you had, you would prevent all wars. So apparently none of these things mean anything to you. All probably you are so deeply conditioned psychologically of course, we are biologically conditioned, that's a different matter altogether. But psychologically conditioned, and one is not aware of it. And you can, unless that, in that there is freedom from that conditioning, you will go on this way. After all, life is what? one global unitary movement. So, in the same way, our consciousness is common to all mankind. Now, if I radically change, surely it affects the rest of the consciousness of man. Now, why don't you change?
welcome to this edition of V Radio. This episode, I decided to start us off with something a little different. Uh, it was from Jidu Krishnamurti, and it was called Why Don't You Change? You can find the original on YouTube. Uh, welcome to this edition of V Radio. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. There you'll find archives of more shows like this one, interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, politicians, the few good ones, uh, lots of great roundtable discussions about current events, kind of like the one we're about to have now. There's also my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that I think are critical to anyone who's socially conscious and aware. Uh, today, my guests are, once again, Ray Powell. Introduce yourself, Ray. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me on again. As well as Chris, also known as Meme Filter. Hi, Neil. Hi, Ray. And hi, Daniel. Yes, and that brings me to Daniel Moreland, who's returning to V-Radio. I can do the show on somebody's mic. I don't know who yet, though. I hope very much that it isn't Mike. This is Daniel Moreland. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back on a second time. forward to uh, participating. All right, so today we're going to be talking about a couple of different topics. I once again kind of picked some articles and, you know, some different subjects to talk about. Um, one thing was uh, that I actually didn't get a chance to uh, share with anybody yet, but um, was that I actually watched this interesting study about honeybees and the way that they come to decisions. Uh, basically, what I was not aware of was that apparently, for example, when bees are deciding on what place they want to move to next, well, first of all, uh, the bees send out scouts, and then those scouts evaluate different places. And then the bees come back, and due to kind of an interpretive dance, they determine, you know, they kind of communicate through to the other bees the different um, facets and uh, characteristics of these possible new sites for beehives. And so what do the other bees do? Well, they watch their friend Boogie and get down and get funky to explain to everybody the scientific values of uh, the next possible um, place for their beehive. And then they go investigate that place for themselves. And then they too come back and do interpretive dance and explain to the other bees through, you know, getting down and getting funky. They, you know, that yeah, in fact, that place for the beehive might actually be pretty cool or maybe it won't, you know, depending on their own interpretations. After they finish doing this process, uh, the beehive has made a decision at that point where to, you know, their next hive. And according to all scientific studies on this so far, uh, bees apparently pick the best selection through this method 99% of the time. Now, what I want to open the discussion about is what is different between the way bees choose a hive and the way that people uh, I've been convinced to choose their politicians or make other decisions. You know, where is it that bees have it right that we have it wrong? I will start with Ray. That's a really great question. Um, and I think there's a fairly clear answer in that we simply uh, operate at a much higher level of abstraction um, or complication in that humans are not only able to evaluate uh, or we're not we, we have more than just the ability just to evaluate a particular place to live or a particular way to solve any problem we also have the ability to evaluate how we evaluate it right and we have the ability to evaluate how we evaluate how we evaluate it 
And that level of abstraction creates an intense, more complicated environment um, where levels upon levels of hierarchy of information sharing and discussion are occurring. So, uh, largely, um, I think it's a, the reason it's a very good question is because that's exactly what we need to learn to do is cut through some of that stuff. Re, uh, remember what is in basic nature, just like it's in the basic nature of the bees. Uh, to commune together, to communicate with each other in such a way that it that it is efficient and ultimately solves problems. And um, I think through our intellectual understanding and our and kind of what I consider to be our selfish uh, ego-based expansion in the last approximately 10,000 years, I think we've come to a point where we're now really we've reached our final end in this way of doing things, this hierarchy, this control system. Uh, with these many levels of information uh, and confusion that is ultimately controlled by a very small few. Um, and and we're, we're reaching the point where that has reached its end, and that if we continue on this track any longer, we're not going to have a planet uh, that's going to support this, this uh, population. So, yes, we need to take it from the bees, start learning to communicate in those subtle ways and hear each other and respect each other and understand each other. And um, that's exactly uh, what I see happening one way or the other. Well, yeah, that's actually a good way of putting it, and not just in the fact that um, our political process would certainly be a lot more interesting if politicians could get down and get funky and do some voting to communicate the truth or falsity <laughs> of their claims. That um, could work, too. You never know. Right. Yeah. Just get down and get funky. Now, uh, Chris, what do you think about the differences between the way bees and large groups of people come to decisions? Well, I think because we stand upright, we tend to focus on square shapes more than hexagonal, but the hexagonal is much more space efficient, so we should probably look into that. But, uh, and and I'll just say, even though it's uh, uh, queens, of, it's, it's girls on top in a beehive, uh, personally, I don't have a problem with thousands of slaves. Uh but I think if we look at human, this is this is problematic, especially considering I'm uh, I, uh, Daniel. I just met, but I know you and Ray pretty well, and that now I'm in that Natural Rights Forum, a conference again, Natural Rights Foundation conference. Uh, that in fact the efficiency gained by sublimating individuality to the utility of the hive uh, is very very efficient in lots of ways, and you see it in. Uh, massive quantities in the insect world. It's a major population trend in insects. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we can put away the pretty socialist pablums aside about who will build the roads or am I my brother's keeper and just look uh, and notice that some things are more efficient, which is probably the best evidence anyone will ever need for why the military is so hierarchical. For sure. Daniel? Well, I've... Um... I've just been informed of this, so this was something I've never uh, never known before. But my my uh, my thoughts, preliminarily, at the risk of uh, upsetting someone, I might say that as far as uh, us separating ourselves from uh, the animal kingdom the way we do, we kind of have uh, our own various uh, cultures, you know, and those can get. Uh, those can really get in the way. You know, if you have uh, a bunch of established ways of doing things um, clashing with um, 
uh, other people. It's it's really not good for um, bridging communication. Bees, after all, you know, they want to survive. <laughs> you know, they they depend on one another. Uh, they understand that the, you know the the more of them that there are. I really do believe that they understand that the more you know the more bees they have, the better they're at surviving and staying well fed. And, you know, maybe having a shot of the queen, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's actually important to note, and that's something else that was brought up in this scientific presentation, was that the queen actually doesn't really make decisions. Uh, She's a baby-making machine. Um, That's like, I mean, mean, yes, everybody just obviously, you know, they do prioritize protecting her, but um, she has a purpose just to keep everyone else in the hive, so... Um, but in any case, um, I'm going to give my own commentary to this. I think Ray's point is definitely a very valid one, and it actually reminds me of some of the wisdom that can be gained, you know, like the Druids, for example, of ancient England used to watch, you know, animals to learn about people, to learn about psychology. Uh, the Native Americans would do the same thing. And one of the main reasons why you can learn from them is that they really do perceive things on a very simple level and in some cases that's actually insightful because we as human beings have a tendency to overcomplicate things and i mean like if you think about it for a moment like you said you know uh, there's no cultures or whatever well imagine that a beehive had political parties (laughs) you know um right so imagine like you know Oh well, they found a really good location, but that's that's the the bee publican location, and and really hoping to get a, a you know a bee democrat you know queen in to office next time. So we're we're gonna go out of our way to really to to make sure that it's not their location, but our location, you know, to to be the next place for the new hive, and that and to impede their progress. <laughs> right. Let's just actively impede their progress to be sure that, you know, that that we get the, you know, the the bee democrat, you know, uh queen that we wanted. You know, things like that, also just uh issues of sentimentality or um ego, for example, you know, if the bees all get together and have their, you know, their their dance party to make their political decisions, um one of the other bees does not take it personally if it if it turns out that another bee happens to find a better location. They go, oh, well, that's cool. Let, let's go move to your location. Your location's a better location. Humans of a sense go, oh, man, he just made me look really stupid. Did you see how long I worked on that long interpretive dance where I was getting down and getting funky? I even had a disco ball on the beehive. Had to get electricity and all that. You know, They might get emotionally attached to the fact that they put on their presentation and then they'll feel threatened or whatever that the other bee might have had a different one. So then they'd all, you know, been out of shape about it. Um, the conversation... Right. Oh, go ahead, Ray. Well, I was just going to say, well, to sum up what you're saying, basically <clears throat> humans in the age, which was largely the point I was making, are have the inability to put aside personal interest and personal gain to honestly decide for themselves what's the best for everybody and, re- and realizing then additionally that what's the best for everybody will ultimately be the best for myself. That's, and that's just a different level of thinking. Um, it, it, it's a complicated way of, of saying what's very simple and intrinsic to a bee colony. For sure. And that's, you know, I think another major point about it is that um, it, we're discussing actually the differences between herd mentality and hive mentality at one time in a conversation about this bee issue, and we brought up the differences, is that a herd um, is full of followers. 
uh, and basically it's full of people who are kind of accustomed to the information being gathered, you know, in a different way. Like a, a herd of buffalo gathers information on possible threats or good, you know, positioning, you know, as far as like good, good places to graze in a different way than a bees would. And that's actually one of the biggest things I would also point out that was different that was brought up in the bee presentation was that uh, bees, like the in other bees, don't just take a word for it from, you know, from the bee who showed up and did a good dance. They go investigate it for themselves. They go check it out and, and test theories and, you know, essentially evaluate it through rational means. You know, we as a culture, um, I guess this would be something else I've noticed about the media in general, is that we become we became conditioned to the idea that there was this uh, trade that someone could have, and it was called being a journalist. And being a good journalist meant that you reported the news very accurately, and you come to depend upon that person who participates in that trade, because obviously, I mean, they wouldn't be on mainstream news if they weren't a good journalist, and we all know that a good journalist means reporting the truth, right? You know, and then absolutely <laughs> right. And then as the, the the journalism trade developed into something that was more essentially commercialized, it became less about being accurate and more about selling a certain agenda. And you couldn't do that to the bees because they're still all going to go scout it out for themselves and see it for themselves. You know, and that's, I think, one of the things that people really don't have in this day and age. And that is the reason that I, you know, that I, I brought it up when I was watching Romney debate was not because I think Obama's a better guy, but because Romney's just lying at super fast pace. And it was in, it was working because most people don't independently investigate. They don't fact check. They don't look directly into what's going on and what they're being told. So they come away with it was, well, that one guy, he was... He was much more confident than that other guy. I mean, he must be right. You know, is is more of a herd mentality kind of thing. Um, you know, and that's I think you know, that ironically, uh, we have allowed ourselves to overcomplicate something to the point of it being inefficient and stupid. And we as humans have a tendency to um, think of ourselves as so much higher than the animals, kind of like that monkey video that uh, Chris is actually the one who introduced me to forever ago. <laughs> And since linked everywhere, you know, we like to talk about what you know separates us from the animals, and you know, but yet we're the only animals that seem to think we're supposed to be happy. Everyone else thinks, you know, every all the other animals can just be, you know. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be looking into happiness or you know anything like that. I think the part of the problem is is that, and this is one of the things that I've noticed that Native American and Druidic wisdom really offered was that we have a tendency to forget that. We're still organisms governed by all the same rules that everyone else is. You know, the bees, when they're picking a new hive, you know, don't go into arguments about whether or not they have the correct market value to go to that hive. They don't argue about whether or not, you know, that, you know, that that hive is, you know, this or that is it, you know, does appreciate our, you know, it doesn't affect our national pride and our patriotism. And, you know, no, they, they go look for the best place that is the best location based upon the amount of available resources and then you know they're going to spend those resources as intelligently as possible and ironically because you know you can see that a lot in different insects in particular in in ants you know and other you know things i think what i learned about it for example that i was aware of was that all the other bees basically go check this stuff out themselves and then they all participate in what is called a participatory democracy it's not the same thing as we all just get up and vote and, 
you know, it, we all participate in the decision making and adding the data to come to the right conclusion, which is obvious when we're not spending all of our time over complicating it. And I know, obviously, this this system can't be used for anything, everything. I mean, but it doesn't change the fact that you know I think that we could learn a lot sometimes from organisms that we consider to be more simple than ourselves. So that's why well, that's I brought, for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned Native Americans. I mean, they referred uh, many Native American languages, at least. They referred to uh, the word for people and the word for all animals is the same, people. <laughs> right. So they don't really differentiate. And I think there's a great – and just, you know, we often uh, sometimes don't realize how much lang- language affects us. But what if we did have the same word for people as we do for animals? And we, right. we, we forced ourselves linguistically to put ourselves on the same level. Maybe we would take a lot more wisdom from those supposed lower creatures well and another problem that humans have is that we because we are advanced we tend to think that the rules of nature don't apply to us or rather we don't really perceive it in the same way like we know that we're doing damage to the environment but i think we kind of also assume we're going to be able to fix it through the same technologies we're using to damage it we don't really get into that it's just like krishnamurti said you know in that clip that i played you know you're concerned about your immediate satisfaction, you know, as long as your immediate satisfaction is settled, then you're fine. You know, you're not looking at the long term, you know, and that's a problem I think that many people, especially as we get so media saturated, you know, with all these distractions. I mean, I've seen people who had just lose themselves in video games and, and other hobbies, and everybody should have some opportunity to, to totally, you know, take some time for leisure. Don't get me wrong. It's just that I've seen people who, they get really worked up over what's happening in their video games, but they do, certainly don't want to talk about, you know, politics or anything that might have you know, affecting their real world. So, um, any closing statements from Daniel or Chris? Well, um, Raymond touched on earlier that I would probably state in a slightly different way the bees. Uh, they're pretty much in the same boat, and the institutions that we have here you know, all of us to some degree have participated in it in one way or another, but we insulate ourselves from the rest of society. So a lot of what we do, especially in the short term, does not have, uh, you know, immediate consequences. Did that make any sense? You know, mm-hmm. that with the way we use money, you know, it, it keeps us from them, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, and people doggedly guard on, you know, excuse me, they doggedly hang on to their uh, lifestyle and do everything they can to protect it and to maintain it. And yep. this goes, because you asked, this switches over into what I would cautiously call my area of expertise, uh, replicator theory, genetics, genetics, and memetics. Uh, it, it's important to remember that the hive has a genetic level for protecting itself. So the kind of xenophobia, the outside us versus them mentality, uh, that Daniel was just citing is very much built into um, insects, you know, basically every significant genetic replicator that's had strong success on the planet. Uh, and I also wanted to bring up, too, that uh, it's not just hives and herds or tribes like primates, uh, but there's flocks of birds and school of fishes and uh, people who study information theory and how ideas get passed around. Uh, have been doing a lot of research into uh, how flocks organize information, who's actually doing the flying, if you will. And it's fascinating line of uh, fascinating study. You brought up herds. 
Uh, and the information always comes from the fringe of the herd because they're the only person who can see, right? No one in the middle of the herd has any visual ability to see a predator out on the fringe. So all the information comes from uh, members of the herd who are furthest away from the center, least safe, coincidentally, too. Uh, and how that drives behavior and how information flows across the herds from individual to individual is fascinating, and it's one of the most significant uh, areas of research going on even in things like neurology and brain studies and, and of course, sociology, the humanities, the arts, and everything else. So uh, it's a fascinating line of reasoning, and as uh, Ray said, it's a really great question because it forces you to confront, is, is the organizational model that we go through in our day-to-day, -day, uh, is that the best? Is it optimal? Is it tradition? Is it intelligence? How do we get here, and where are we going? Right. Absolutely. So, um, I actually have some breaking news. This is something that just came up, uh, like, while I was perusing over. Uh, youngest son of Colonel Gaddafi dead after Bonnie Wallet's siege. Uh, Libya Deputy uh, Prime Minister. Libya's Deputy Prime Minister has confirmed on his Twitter that the youngest son of Colonel Gaddafi has been killed in Bon Wally's siege. The body of uh, Karmis Gaddafi is now in a hospital in Misrata. Dr. Mustafa Abukash... Uh, Abu Shagar said, earlier conflicting reports on Twitter said that Khamis Gaddafi was either on a line of the world or captured by the government forces. The version which said the seventh and the youngest son of the Libyan former strongman has been captured also claimed he sustained serious wounds and died, Al-Libya reported citing own sources. Khamis Gaddafi was said to have been killed by a new airstrike in August 2011, but this has never been confirmed by evidence. After that, his death has been claimed several times by the new government's fighters and various militia groups. Earlier in the day, the office of the Libyan prime minister also stated they had arrested Musa Ibrahim, Muammar Gaddafi's former spokesman. So, um, basically, I guess uh, that's finally settled. I don't really, you know, I wasn't really paying a huge amount of attention to it, but um, overall, it means the son of the dictator that we loved and then we hated and then we. And then we loved, and then we hated again. It's finally gone. If anybody has any commentary on that, then fine. Otherwise, I'll go to my next article. The world oh, is now just, safe uh, for Lady Gaga to tour Libya. <laughs> yes. And thank God for that. Um, right. <clears throat> this whole this whole thing with all these, uh, you know, you never know. Uh, it's just it, it's unfortunate that that we will never really know what's going on. We never know what level of interaction our CIA and all that is is causing these events versus what is uh, really the will of the people in the various countries. And uh, unfortunately, you, you kind of never... It's very difficult to get to the truth of any of it through the mainstream media. And, you know, the, the confusion of those kind of events is just another sign. Right. Agreed. Now... Back to uh, regularly scheduled articles. Um, this one should prove interesting. It says, Ayn Rand would be proud. Soup Kitchen in Paul Ryan's photo op loses funds, gets attacked by conservative trolls. Ryan's political theater has jeopardized donations for the food bank. October 19, 2012. Last weekend, Paul Ryan demonstrated his compassion for the poor by rolling up his sleeves at an Ohio soup kitchen, kitchen and faking a photo op. The vice presidential <laughs> candidate, Walston to Cleveland Air... Mahoning County City Vince DePaul Society, and that's a long name. Well, after he everyone had eaten and left and washed some pans that may or may not have already been cleaned while reporters took pictures. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. In addition to widespread mockery, Ryan's 
a half-assed attempt to simulate concern for the poor for 15 minutes drew an angry response from the president of the facility, Brian J. Antle, who told the Washington Post that Ryan's slimy political theater might jeopardize donations to the food bank. Quote, we're a faith-based organization. We are apolitical because the majority of our funding is from private donations, he said. We can't afford to lose funding from these private individuals. As it turns out, the privilege of being Ryan's background scenery has already taken a toll on the organization. Antle told the Huffington Post that many donors have fled, leading, a lo leading to a loss of funds. Quote, it appears to be a substantial amount, Antle told the Huffington Post. You can rest assured that there has a substantial backlash. On top of all that, deranged conservatives have been harassing volunteers, Antel claims. Ryan's supporters have now targeted Antel and his kitchen, Antel said, including making hundreds of angry phone calls. Some member of Antel's volunteer staff had um, have had to endure the barrage as well. He said, the sad part is a lot of the callers want to hide behind anonymity. He said, adding that if someone leaves their name and a number, he has tried to return their call. It's almost as if Ryan was, has staged elaborate tribute to Ayn Rand, whose philosophy denigrates people who help the needy, people like Antel, who told the Huffington Post that his job does not come with a salary. But David Gibson, writing on Common Commonweal, makes the great point that the entire sorry episode actually undermines one of the main tenets of Ryan's other religion. The VP candidate's interpretation of the Catholic social gospel, notes Gibson, is that faith-based groups and individuals should be need should be the needy safe net instead of government. As Gibson writes, the exodus of donors from the Ohio Food Bank shows just how misguided that is in the real world. Uh, people even of uh, so people even people of faith don't consistently fulfill that responsibility. They we are flawed human beings who nurse grudges and lash out angry. We can blithely go on our way to the next task, the next meal, to the next campaign stop, and the vulnerable suffer. Private charity is not a safety net. Government support is indispensable. The trouble of Paul Ryan and the soup kitchen should demonstrate this, if nothing else. Now, it's important to note that I, in many cases, bring these articles up for the sake of having a good conversation about them. I don't necessarily agree about everything that's in these articles, just a reminder. So... Um, I'm sure Ray is probably chomping at the bit, so I'll let him go first. <laughs> <laughs> Ayn Rand, what a fascinating subject. We've had long discussions about about that, that finally. And, uh, you know, I think this article gives her a bad rap uh, because it's the, what it stated about her philosophy seemed to be summed up in one sentence, which was essentially um, that her philosophy was one which helping others was bad. Hmm. Sum it up. Uh that was that now now I have said similar things, I say it pretty differently. That was not the the core of her philosophy. What that was was ultimately the place where she was led to, uh and I've heard her say things almost that direct, uh after long winded debates with collectivists. Uh collectivists being those who believe that they have the right to force their goodwill and their good charity ideas upon others who aren't interested in their charity ideas. Um, and she was really railing against collectivism in that sense. And that led her to almost say things like, yes, it is evil to help others. And But that does not, that is not at all a fair way to sum up her entire philosophy. Right. What do you think, Chris? Regarding, or, oh, wait, yeah. if you had more, Ray, go ahead. Just real quick, regarding the Revit and the conservative people, I don't even know what, the, I don't even understand what, I missed it. I just don't get it. So, 
maybe maybe one of you guys understood what the backlash was or why people are mad or because I don't. Okay. Um, let me go ahead and come a little bit on that just so we can clarify. But basically, the guy just kind of walked into a soup kitchen after everybody had already been fed and let reporters take pictures of him while he did dishes at a soup kitchen. The backlash, I guess, is that there are places, there are people who donated to that place based on faith and uh, are not happy that he used the place as a political, you know, uh, tool. So that's basically um, what I got out of that. But now that was conservatives that were mad about him doing that. No, no, there were there were people who would normally. Um, there were people who there were people who normally donate to the place who stopped donating because Paul Ryan used it as a photo op. Then there are also conservatives who were upset, you know, that about the whole thing, like just trolling about it, I guess. So that's basically what I got out of the article. Typical American nonsense. Right. I had a similar I, opinion, Neil. I mean it, it just but the way I was looking at it, you know, when when I when I first read it is, I mean, it was. I thought it was shameful, really, for Ryan to go there and to do what he did because it's, you know, he's trying to appear to be in touch with the proverbial 99%. But I, I, I think it was equally shameful for the donors to withdraw their support because, in their own way, they're being, uh, I guess, obstructionists by doing that. It kind of illustrates to me, rather pointedly, how far our politics in general have actually degenerated because you know both sides really have to go to you know extraordinary lengths to put forth this image that they're somehow like i said before in touch you know with the lower class and it's the farthest thing from the truth imaginable to me you know the institutions that we have the way we use uh i don't want to get off into too big of a tangent but the, the way we use money you know it's a source of freedom and it insulates us like it before from those who don't have it if every elected official uh, you know, in Washington, were put on minimum wage and had to pay for their own health insurance. You would see probably an overnight change in the way they did things. I mean, I, there's a part of me I would love to see that, not because I want to see them suffer, <laughs> but you know, in an abstract way, I guess I get some enjoyment to see that. But they would have a, you know, a far greater interest in actual problem solving and not maybe so much empowering themselves in their bureaucracy. You know, throw in a throw in biweekly random drug tests. You know, with the results being public, you know, full disclosure of everything, that'd be that'd really be something. <laughs> no, for sure. Chris? Well, I think uh, the question unasked is uh, whether or not the soup kitchen was privately owned, and if so, whether or not Ayn Rand would uh, endorse having the property owner kick Paul Ryan onto the curb instead of staging ridiculous Photoshop there. <laughs> photo, sorry, right. photo event, sure. photo ops, not Photoshop. Uh, you, you know what's really here going on here is uh, uh, Paul Ryan is uh, a slightly less compelling haircut than Mitt Romney, but other than that, I don't think he has a whole lot of intellectual sense or legislative ability. He's just going around playing inside of the same game as anyone else, uh, and it's convenient for uh, people who are into wealth redistribution you know, at a macro level, to uh, link him and Rand together when I think Ray had the the bulk of the point there, is that is her position on altruism is a derived 
definition from, you know, 15 layers up an epistemological ladder that has nothing to do with whether or not, doesn't really have any implication at all with whether or not you give a coffee to a homeless man. It doesn't. It's, it's the, the tiniest little slice of what she was trying to claim, for better or for worse. I'm not, I'm not particularly a fanboy anymore. Uh, but, you know, we get another another case of colleges and perf and perf and perf. Can't we be outraged about this? It's soup catch- kitchens versus greedy capitalists. I, I don't care. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it's all good theater, and uh, it's very interesting as a study of economics of media. But other than that, I mean, I think the, the simple fact is uh, I, I read a great article today where it was uh, it was like the hill. It was someone right down the middle inside the beltway who was saying – who used for the first time the headline Robomni or like uh, Obamni and Robama. And he went through this whole thing about uh, how I've been traditionally, you know, like an East Coast liberal college educated inside the Beltway person. But I'm finally beginning to see that these candidates aren't very different. And, you know, and then I pulled the strained peas out of his mouth, patted him on the head and sent him off to kindergarten. (laughs) Oh, Great. (laughs) Well, but I mean, seriously, it's like e- even inside of it, they're like, re- we're really stretching to try and pretend there's stuff to debate. Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. I think that um, it's important for me to note, especially to the listeners, uh, why is this even relevant? I think it's also largely to point out, it, it's, I kind of wanted to start a conversation in the direction that uh, people understanding exactly how voters come to the decisions that they do. And it's obviously not through going and investigating the, you know, location for the new beehive it's uh <laughs> it's actually through very small things you know i one of the things that actually ironically i learned this from watching one of the bad lip reading videos of mitt romney um i don't know if you guys have watched any of those but they're really really funny um i thought about i thought about playing one once but it occurred to me it just wouldn't be as funny unless you're watching mitt romney look like he's saying these things mm-hmm. you know but the, ironically, it wasn't the bad lip reading or whatever that was what I wanted to bring up. It was because what they did is they kind of dub over one of Romney's own ads, uh, you know. And one at one part of the the video, he's talking it, at some conference where it's all black voters, and it just occurred to me, you know, I was like, okay, why is he doing that? I'm like, oh yeah, because you know he's got to win over black voters because supposedly all black voters are going to vote for Barack Obama. Note I said supposedly, um, and unfortunately there there is something to that. I mean, there were people who did because based on race, and um, but it doesn't change the fact that you know he's trying to project himself as being someone you know who cares about black issues. There was also part of it where he was speaking to an all-group of seniors. Why is that important? Because seniors vote more than anyone else. You know, it's there's there's all kinds of strategies being used in this election and every other election for the purpose of kind of trying to redirect our attention. You know, we look at Mitt Romney talking to black voters, and then, you know, of course, they show shots of the voters nodding to everything he says. And, you know, look at Mitt Romney talking to elderly people and, you know, and of course, you know they 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 nod as well. You know, and that's essentially the the point behind it to me is a photo op like this is that Paul Ryan, a guy that I have a funny feeling has never participated in any soup kitchen other than that 15 minute photo op in his entire life, who certainly won't be you know participating in doing dishes at any soup kitchens, you know, in the future. It, it was trying to sway voters to think, hey, we're really sorry about that whole 47 percent thing. You know, <laughs> we, we we like you too, 
you know, and I just want people to, to look for this and to look for signs like this in their day to day lives. It just so happens that you know the the election is like the is the buzz news right now, and once again, I want to I want to promote the uh, the third party um, debates that are coming up on Free and Equal Org. Um, you should yeah. also check out uh, Democracy Now because Democracy Now, Amy Goodman did a an extended debate where she paused the uh, you know the Romney Obama debate and allowed all of the third party candidates to re- to respond. And I got to tell you, I'm really liking Rocky Anderson. Um, but even if you still believe that voting is bullshit, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, just listening to these people and the different things that they say and understand why it is that the media doesn't want to conference and does not want these people around will teach you a lot about the way the world works. So, but, hey, Neil, um, I was just going to clarify quick that anybody who's interested in seeing the debate live, uh, the third party debate um, for uh, third party candidates, of course, the top. Uh, Republican and Democrat nominees have been invited as well, but have uh, not uh, RSVP'd, have not, uh, you know, acknowledged that they will be attending at this time. Anyway, if you want to watch that debate live, uh, you got to go to freeandequaldebate.org and right. uh, RSVP. And it's apparently also going to be shown on Russia Today and Al Jazeera and is going to be moderated by, of all people, Larry King. So... I, that actually uh, is interesting because it looks like these third-party debates are going to be a little bit more big tent now. Um, I still remember when we were dealing with uh, Christina Tubman way back in 2008 and all of the efforts that were, you know, that had done to get together a debate, and I'm glad to see that it's slowly, you know, getting more and more attention. So, um, but anyway, uh, that being said, I'm going to move on to the next article. Um, this one is kind of a tender issue, and I'm bringing it up, you know, even though it's 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 something that I felt kind of needed attention and I'm interested to hear what everybody thinks about it, even though it's not really as relevant to things like the economy and things we normally talk about on V radio, but um, college rape survivor told not to report rapist drops out while alleged rapist graduates with honors. Amherst is supposed to be a liberal institution. The mistreatment of a rape survivor shows how pervasive rape culture is. A former Amherst student detailed her experience of on-campus rape and the college's abysmal treatment of the situation in a searing and painful essay. The piece in the Amherst student by Angie Epifano, who left the college because of her experience, has focused a national spotlight on the liberal university's treatment of rape and rape culture, raising questions about the treatment of sexual assault, victims, and perpetrators on the campuses around the country. In her piece, prefaced with a trigger warning, Epifano writes about the trauma following her rape by a college acquaintance. This is from the the writing. Some nights I can still hear the sounds of his roommates on the other side of the door, unknowingly talking and joking as I was held down. It is far from a pleasant wake-up call. I had always fancied myself a strong, no-nonsense woman whose intense independence was cultivated by 17 harrowing years of emotional abuse in my backwards, backwards home. May 25th temporarily shattered that self-image and left me feeling like the broken victim that I had never wanted to be. Everything I had believed myself to be was gone in 30 minutes. In an attempt to push the incident from her mind, Epifano explains that she did not report assault immediately, but only came forward to the school's sexual assault counselor after she had to count- had to countenance her rapist in a fundraising project and was thrown into severe emotional turmoil. Epifano's account of her treatment by the counseling service is as disturbing as any part of her harrowing story. This is a further quote. In short, I was told, no, you can't change dorms. There are too many students right now. 
Pressing charges would be useless. He's about to graduate. There's not much we can do. Are you sure it was rape? It might have just been a bad hookup. You should forgive and forget. How are you supposed to forget the worst night of your life? I was continuously told that I had forg- had to forgive him, that I was a crazy that I was crazy for being scared on campus, and that there was nothing that could be done. They told me we can report your rape as a statistic, you know, for the records. But I don't recommend that you go through a disciplinary hearing. It would be you, a faculty advisor of your of your choice, him, and a faculty advisor of his choice, in a room where you would be trying to prove that he raped you. You have no physical evidence. It wouldn't get it wouldn't get you very far to do this. Epifano recounts how, uh, when she expressed a suicidal thought to her counselor, she was immediately committed to the local hospital's psychiatric ward for five days, where she says the doctor was no more supportive. I really don't think that a school like Amherst would allow you to be raped. And why didn't you tell anybody, she recalls the doctor suggesting. Epifano describes a rape by a student and an ongoing abuse by an institution. Eventually, she withdrew from Amherst and remained sickened by the administration's refusal to take rape seriously. She writes, citing unofficial statistics, Amherst has almost 1,800 students. Last year alone, there were a minimum of 10 sexual assaults on campus. In the past 15 years, there have been multiple serial rapists, men who rape more than five girls, according to the sexual assault counselor. Rapists are given less punishment than students caught stealing. Survivors are often forced to take time off while rapists are allowed to stay on campus. If a rapist is about to graduate, their punishment is often that they receive diploma two years late. There's more to this, but I continue. Um, I eventually reported my rapist. He graduated with honors. I will not graduate from Amherst. As Jezebel reported, Epifano's story follows on the heels of another Amherst incident, which portrayed liberal college as a hotbed of rape culture. A secret fraternity t-shirts for a party showing a cartoon woman beaten, bound, and spit roasting over a fire. Before a student blog post drew wider attention to the issue, the administration responded to the t-shirts only with closed-door small meetings and boys-will-be-boys comments, according to the blogger. Jezebel adds that following Epifano's essay, Amherst College President has issued a statement. Clearly, the administration's responses to reports have left survivors feeling that they were badly served. That must change and change immediately, said President Carolyn Martin. Well, I'm glad you're interested now. This recent dim spotlight on rape and rape apologists at Amherst, identifying liberal institution, points to a national problem. Take Back the Night estimates that one four female undergraduates will be sexually assaulted at college, while a rape occurs on on average every 20 hours on some U.S. college cases. So, basically now I want to open the floor to discussion. I will start with you, Daniel. Well, um... Having never been raped myself, and I'm just being honest here, I cannot fully understand and appreciate, really, the psychological anguish that she went through. And I think the same thing with the uh, the faculty that was obstructing, by my opinion, obstructing justice. They've never gone through it. So they don't know what kind of uh, damage um, something like that could do. Let me you know, interrupt be- you, Drill, briefly, just to point out, to remind everybody that rape can also happen to men. Oh yes. <laughs> Please continue. Um, and and you know, for me to go so far to say, oh wow, I I know, I know what she went through. I, that was very presumptuous, <laughs> you know, me without having gone through anything like that. But um, I thought that Amber's response to all of this was um, was mind blowing. 
you know, if if emotionally speaking, to me, it was almost as if they were they were practically doing everything they could to push her over the edge so that she would actually follow through with it and rid them of this little whiny malcontent that's bothering them. You know, I thought, you know, I, I went, I took the time, I read her essay or you know the uh, uh, the uh, her account, mm-hmm. and the only thing. I mean, it, it was very moving. She did a, an amazing job expressing her feelings. And honestly, I would highly recommend anyone listening to actually read her full account. It, it goes into great detail, and you are taken along for the proverbial ride. Um, I thought it was outrageous what Amherst did. And I, you know, on a personal level, I really hope she's able to uh, go to another, another college and, uh, you know, fulfill her um, her dreams and her uh, educational requirements. That's about all I can really say about that at the moment. Chris? It's unfortunate that uh, this happened, and I know that sounds cavalier and callous, but there's kind of, it's heartfelt, and there's sort of no other way to put it. Uh, we could analyze any number of reasons why a very top liberal arts college like Amherst uh, would seek to cover up serial rape on their campus because certainly publicizing something like that would affect admissions. Uh, but, you know, part of me is just really, really jaded, and it's no different than, like, the Duke... Well, actually, Duke lacrosse well, is actually a little bit different. But, uh, you know, what's going on at college campuses and nightclubs and bars and, I'm sure, gymnasiums and... Mm-hmm offices and all over this little world. But it's a, a you know, a particularly egregious example because it's it's the vested interest of the corporation that is the university just sitting there and really making a, making a show of how uh insensitive they can be and you know, they're going to get bad press for it and I hope it hurts. And and, and, hope, uh, and, and I hope the young lady in question uh uh, gets over it, doesn't take it, suddenly realizes that men are stupid often, and she can still be anything she wants. <laughs> Great. Great. Yeah, well, what a touchy subject. Uh, I guess the primary things I see here is, yes, if this young lady was was was, was so hurt and, and did, in fact, take the time, which the article doesn't mention, but which Daniel did, to actually write all this up, um, and, and did a good job of doing so in a way that uh, was was able to, to leave the reader feeling some genuineness to the story. Uh, you would think at least that the college would take that much seriously and work with her to create what minimally they could do uh, to remove her at least from uh, contact with this individual. Uh, of course, at the end of the day, such an accusation is a crime. Uh, I mean, such an event happening would be a crime. Uh, clearly, it is on the books. It is in in uh, in every principle of law that exists. So, uh, but unfortunately, even even though it is a crime, the burden of proof still does lie on her to prove that the crime was committed. So, in in the, in the sense of the criminal case, you can understand maybe why it's going to be a tough road to go. Um, and of course, you have all the additional um, politics involved with with the publicity that would be associated with such a thing. 
Uh, and yeah, I got to agree with Chris that it's really unfortunate that she did take this so personally and was not able to maintain the strength that she claims she has um, managed to, to build up over the years. You would hope that, um, that she would find that strength to um, not let this guy, uh, whatever he did or did not do that, that destroyed her self-confidence, that, that she will not let that affect her ability to achieve her goals. And yeah, I really I gotta hope that that she comes around realizing that sooner than later and gets back on the horse and gets her degree if that's what she wants to do. You know, and to engage in a little hyperbole, the administration, the school administration's rape of her was probably equally as bad. But I hope she's strong enough to get past that too. Right, and I think it's important to note that it's you know definitely important to note that we we are definitely not putting any kind of the responsibility for any of that on her. It, and I think that it, for me, honestly, what bothered me the most about this story is that um, having watched a really good documentary called uh, Declining by Degrees, Higher Education at Risk, the first thing that pops into my head is the profit motive. You know, it's bad for a college if their security is not good enough. You know, parents don't want to send their, their girls to a place where something might happen to them. And, you know, it looks bad for your college if this sort of thing happens. You know, so if it as a result, obviously, you know, if if you have this happen or scandals like this happen at your college, well, you're likely to lose tuition and profits, you know, and that's why it's it's even more ridiculous to me, you know, like the president of the college in this case was a woman even and, you know, did not get around to caring about what happened to the poor lady until after the fact, after it's already become public, you know, after the girl has already done you know, acted against what her guidance counselor said, and why do they care? Well, yeah, he's just—he's getting ready to—he's you know, getting ready to graduate anyway. Why don't you just let him go? You know, no. Why don't you fucking put him in prison? That—that that would be yeah. a good answer. You know, I'll tell you why. Because you know they want to give this guy a diploma and they want their money. You know, why is there even a question about whether or not it should be relevant? You know, uh, based on the idea that he's going to uh, graduate soon. That's just well, that's you know, I mean, monstrous. I think- yeah, I think you you just did what I was advising us not to do, which is <laughs> let's acknowledge let's acknowledge that the school probably pretty obviously handled this badly, but let's not in in doing so all of a sudden convict this guy because we know nothing about the case. That's that's fair. Um, I guess though that that being the case though they they still should have seen to it that the authorities were involved to find out if he was. I would agree mm-hmm. with that. I mean, if the girl like I said, if the girl was that serious enough to write it all up. Uh, and do all that effort, you know, it seems to be worth an investigation. Sure. Now, there's actually an article that I was planning to use earlier, and I had I'd forgotten about, um, then I'm going to go ahead and use it now, but uh, man held in New York City plot to blow up the Federal Reserve. Um, this is from Fox 19. New York AP, a Bangladeshi man who came to the United States to wage jihad, was arrested in an elaborate FBI sting on Wednesday after attempting to blow up a fake car bomb outside the Federal Reserve Building in Manhattan. Before trying to carry out the alleged terrorism plot, Quasi Mohammed Renzwani Hassan Nafis went to a warehouse to help assemble a 1,000-pound bomb using inert material, according to a criminal complaint. He also asked an undercover agent to videotape him, saying, we will not stop until we attain victory of martyrdom, the complaint said. Uh, agents grabbed the 21-year-old Nafiz, uh, armed with a cell phone he believed was rigged to a detonator, after he made several attempts to blow up the bomb inside a vehicle parked next to the Federal Reserve, the complaint said. Authorities emphasized that the plot never posed an actual risk. However, they claimed the case demonstrated the value of using sting operations to neutralize young extremists eager to harm Americans. 
Attempting to destroy a landmark building and kill or maim untold numbers of innocent bystanders is about as serious as the imagination uh, can conjure, said Mary uh, Galligan, acting head of the FBI's New York office. The defendant faces appropriately severe consequences. Nafis appeared in federal court in Brooklyn to face charges of attempting to use weapon of mass destruction and attempting to provide material support to al-Qaeda. Wearing a brown t-shirt and black jeans, he was ordered held without bail and did not enter a plea. His defense attorney had no comment outside court. The defendant had sought assurances from an undercover agent posing as an al-Qaeda contact that the terrorist group would support the operation. The thing, or, quote, the thing that I want to do, or want to do, ask you about, is the thing that I'm doing. It's under Al-Qaeda, it was, a, it was his question. He was recorded saying during a meeting in the bugged hotel room in the Queens, according to the complaint. In the September meeting in the same hotel room, Nafiz confirmed he was ready to kill himself during the course of the attack, but indicated he wanted to return to Bangladesh to see his family one last time to set his affairs in order, the complaint said. Uh, but there was no allegation that Nafiz actually received training or direction from the terrorist group. Prosecutors say Nafiz traveled to the U.S. on a student visa in January to carry out an attack in July. He contacted a confidential informant telling him he wanted to terror cell, the criminal complaint said. In further conversations, authorities said Nafiz proposed several spots for his attack, including the New York Stock Exchange, and then in a written letter taking responsibility for the Federal Reserve job he was about to carry out, he said he wanted to destroy America. Other communications took place through Facebook, the complaint said. A Twitter account with suspect's name and photo and six followers and two messages was linked to a Facebook page that had been taken down. Nafis attended Southern Missouri State University during the spring semester, which ran from January to May. University spokesman Han Hayes told the Associated Press he was pursuing a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. Funny that. Hayes said Nafiz requested a transfer of his records in July, and the university complied, though she couldn't say where the records were transferred. On Wednesday, federal officials were at the New York home where Nafiz was staying, a red brick building the Jamaica neighborhood of Queens. Um, owner Rethagul Islam said Nafiz was staying with his second-floor tenants, and he was told he was related to the family. The tenants didn't answer their door, and their apartment was dark. Um... I actually don't want to see if I can get back through to like actually parts of this that are more relevant. But, oh, quote, he seemed like a regular nice guy to me, Santos said. I'm just shocked right now that he tried to plant a 1,000-pound bomb. That's crazy. Uh, Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly said the case is one more reminder that New York remains a target. Now, um, oh, actually, let me read the rest of this. New York continues to be very much in, in the mind frame of terrorism. This vigil came here with the express purpose of committing a terrorist attack. He was motivated by al-Qaeda. We see his threat as being with us for a long time to come. Kelly said security is always a precaution, and there are about a 1,000 officers in the counterterrorism division. He didn't specify any additional measures were being taken. Okay, so um, let, let me uh, just kind of cut off the reading of this for a moment and, and ask some questions of, of you guys. Because there's a lot of buzz going on. Um, over the uh, this issue, and the reason why is because people kind of are like, okay, so you convinced a guy to be your patsy, and you gave him a fake bomb, and then, oh, wow, you did some amazing police work, and you caught him. Wow, yeah. the FBI is great. You guys are great. Hey, let's give, you, let's give you some more money in Congress, is generally the buzz that's being given. Now, mind you, once again, you know, there isn't necessarily any um, proof to prove that claim, but that is what it looks like. 
And then we have the issue of the, the sting operation. You know, is that a moral way of doing it? You know, it's like, so the guy even is asking, okay, now if I do this attack, this is through Al-Qaeda, right? Which <laughs> throws up even more of a, a point about the fact that the guy was actively looking for somebody from Al-Qaeda, and then an FBI guy had to pretend to be someone from Al-Qaeda. This kind of brings me back to that point that I've said so many times before, like on the show we did with Ben, the BBC documentary, The Power of Nightmares, that revealed that Al-Qaeda is actually a much smaller organization than we have ever been led to believe, um, that even mainstream British news acknowledges that. So, it's the name of the damn CIA database. Right, right. And that name was was thrust into the public image in in, in the ninety four Trade Center bombing. Exactly, and that's the, I guess basically we we have two things here that I think are important to discuss. One is you know the possibility that especially like when you consider the way they're trying to spin the Libya thing, you know that happens in New York, that it happens to the Federal Reserve, which is something that is currently getting a lot of negative attention. You know, and I've heard activists in the past jokingly say I might like to blow up the Federal Reserve. You know, I've heard uh, people say, you know, if V, you know, the guy from V for Vendetta, the character V was around, he'd probably blow up the Federal Reserve. So now anybody who says those words, in fact, uh oh, I just said them, is, is going to be immediately uh, connected to terrorism. You know, and obviously the idea of blowing it up, you know, is, a, is the idea of a, of a terrorist act. But it doesn't change the fact that now that somebody's actually gone through all of this and there's all this public controversy, you won't even be able to make that joke without anybody, you know, getting the idea that you're thinking about doing that. Um, it, it's just, it's all kind of plays together for me. And, and furthermore, what are, what are our feelings as a panel about the idea of terrorist sting operations where I manipulate you to believe that I'm an Al-Qaeda operative and that I'd like to help you? You know, I mean, it, I guess... I'd want to listen to the kind of conversations this guy had because Al-Qaeda operatives supposedly and, you know, Islamic militants in generally, general are uh, brainwashed into doing these things. Even the news admits that. So if, if I'm pretending to be an Al-Qaeda operative, am I pushing you with propaganda? Am I showing you films? Am I, you know, what am I doing to convince you? So sounds to me like like uh, whoever was doing that is engaged in terrorism, and if that's the FBI, we have a clear case of the FBI engaging in terrorism. <laughs> well, that is one way to look at it, Ray. I was going to go ahead and talk to you first. So, what do you think about this topic? Well, I think it's absolutely. It's I'm totally against all of that kind of coercive uh, criminal behavior, and for some reason, the word is slipping my mind of what that's called when the police that they've been doing it for a long time. Entrapment, exactly. And, you know, they've been doing it with with prostitution. I was against it then. This is no different. Only this is, um, oh, the, the, the charges are a lot more serious here. And let's not forget, you know, I don't know who this who this, this kid was or this guy. Uh, and, and I don't know whether he had anything useful that he was adding to this world. But I do know I have a personal friend who some others on this um, call maybe know or, or be aware of. It's just Schaefer Cox. Uh, who is now looking at 30 years in federal prison uh, under almost identical circumstances, although it wasn't a bomb. It was an FBI plant coming into um, his peacemaker's militia, okay? Um, You know, uh, so the the guy was a local hero, had had talked down um, a couple of, uh, uh, at least once, uh, had talked down a a problem where where the – the cops were kicking a guy's door shooting, okay? He had handled that whole situation bravely. He was in the papers as kind of like a local hero kid. Um, 
you know, supposedly leads hundreds, if not thousands of guys that, that loved, he's an amazing speaker, uh, was really just fundamentally addressing so many core important things up in Fairbanks uh, that he was filling auditoriums very quickly. The FBI caught wind of him, and they didn't like that, so they used the same technique, and he's now sitting in, uh, well, awaiting sentencing any day in federal prison, uh, in a federal, uh, holding facility, and facing 30 years of prison. Essentially, the FBI went in there, coerced him into conversation about talking about killing judges, uh, and, and that was all it took, a coercive conversation. And in the details of what he participated in those conversations, I don't know, just like we don't know the details of what this kid may or may not have said regarding his feelings about the Federal Reserve or, or, or actually blowing it up. Um, and it just is unfortunate that, that a person can be targeted for any reason and have these techniques used to destroy their life, to destroy their family. Right. Chris? Well, I'm sitting here looking at the Wikipedia page for the Wall Street thing. It's, uh, you're right that it's the Federal Reserve that was the target this time. Uh, and, you know, let's just assume for the uh, sake of argument here that no one at the Fed knew this was going to happen. Uh, interesting target choice, FBI. Very interesting target choice. Uh, I will say that... Um, I'm sure there's plenty of good cops, as it were, in the FBI, people who are trying to be honest and uh, trying to do right by the people and the law as it's written or as they understand it. But uh, if you look at the broader trend of nationalism, transnationalism, and internationalism, the FBI uh, got used through the early history of America to become the larger the trans-jurisdictional, the larger-than-the-state police force, the national-level police force, and it would be no surprise to the FBI that in a transnational environment, they're now the, the small dogs in the pond, to abuse a metaphor, and they have to really struggle to have any kind of a fraction in the media for their funding, right? Now they're competing against entities like MI5 and the CIA who have movies made about them. No one makes movies about the FBI anymore. Right. And that's, that's I think, the most significant datum in this is, isn't it convenient that over the past couple of years, the FBI has a really good track record of stopping the terrorist plots of their own creation? Absolutely. And that's, I think, you know, the funny thing about this is, is that, you know, like just like the thing in Waco where they made a much bigger deal out of it than needed to be done. They they did it in this way that was going to have all kinds of pomp and flash. And you know, it now essentially, and it you know, even coerce, like like the word Ray would use. I, I mean, I, I and I'm not disagreeing with it. You know, coerce is definitely one bad way of looking at it. I think manipulation and like you know, the guy probably didn't feel coerced. He probably felt inspired. That's how most of these terrorist bombers or whatever act. You know, they feel like they're they're going to do something that's going to get them the thousand virgins when they die and all that other jazz. So um, they get inspired to go do these things. That's how, you know, the the Islamic militants, you know, abroad have a tendency to do that when they have something that needs to be done. You know, and, and remembering, of course, we're talking about Islamic militants here, um, and they're by no means the first uh, suicide bombers in the history of the world. The uh, Japanese kamikaze pilots were suicide bombers, you know, motivated by the Shinto religion. Um, but we definitely put a lot of interesting points, you know. So now 
there's been terrorist interest in the Federal Reserve. Uh, there's been uh, terror, you know, and this terrorist, you know, was looking for Al Qaeda. Um, apparently, he didn't find Al Qaeda. He found, an, you know, an agent instead. You know, that's <laughs> it, how convenient. Um, you know, and all of these things put together, I guess, is you know, I hope that people are looking and, and paying close attention because there's a reason why entrapment is illegal. And I wonder how illegal it would be in a situation like this. You know, how illegal would entrapment be in a situation because of all of the legislation that we have about terrorism and how much terrorism, as soon as you've been accused of being a terrorist or established as being a terrorist by the president with no oversight, I might add, um, you, your rights go flying out the window. That's all stuff that's on the books. So it makes you wonder, you know, so are these sting operations like this, are they, you know, are they um in in some way illegal or are they not i'm afraid to say i i doubt they are um and it also brings up a lot of other things when you think about it because when we go to an occupy meeting if if somebody just happens to talk about this stuff and we don't all turn him in right away does that mean that we're all part of this terrorist plot this guy might be coming up with you know and that's one of the reasons why i've told people that the only way we can ever protect ourselves from this kind of nonsense is to be totally dedicated to the non-aggression principle in all of our activism so that it's incredibly clear that, well, if that guy did that, he wasn't doing it because we, he was in any way affiliated with us. So, Daniel, did you have something to add? I actually kind of had, but it was slightly, and I, and I do agree with you rather, I mean, almost everything you said, Neil, The um, <clears throat> but the angle that I was getting at was in terms of actual protection, what these people are supposed to be actually doing. Um it, wouldn't it be a lot more productive if they were monitoring his interaction with an actual terrorist organization that, and they were actually plotting to do something and there was something actually in the works well, rather I, than this whole thing that got put together? That was actually one of the things that I thought about in addition to what uh, you'd expressed. That's well, actually a really good point. Go ahead. It really is. And, and and just goes to show uh, how much they wish there was more terrorism than there really is. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's actually, you know, I remember talking about that as, as early as the old North Virginia Patriots show with you, Ray. I was like, you know, it, it's interesting to me that the same politicians who want to, like, have us frisked and, and scanned when we go into the, uh, you know, go into the the airports, are also the same people who tend to be kind of lax on the idea of illegal immigrants. Like, they, they don't really care too much about people walking across the border. And I always said, you know, if I were a terrorist, what I'd do is, I, you know, especially if I was a Middle Eastern terrorist, I would just pretend to be a Mexican man and walk across the border like all the other people who do. You know, it, it's, it's odd to me that, you know, those two things essentially, it's a big kind of uh, contradiction in strategy, so to speak, that anybody who is not so concerned about our borders is concerned about whether or not we can travel via the you know via airplanes. You know Wait. Wait, maybe this whole thing about terrorism is just a way to control the population. Well that I, thought didn't occur to me. Man. Oh my oh my God. Wow. Wait, I'm on a conspiracy theory show? No oh no, that couldn't be. Well no, we're not a conspiracy theory show. We we kinda go out of our way to make sure that people understand when we can't prove something. But you know, but given that, Ray, you know, you, you live in New Mexico. You'd be in on this. Is that why you're on the <laughs> podcast? Yeah, right. <laughs> right to you, buddy. 
we're going to put bombs in burritos now and with green chilies and guacamole. Uh, honestly, these hardened Al-Qaeda fighters wouldn't last a minute on the Mexican border. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you something. The only bomb I'm I'm planting is a money bomb for the third party presidential debate at right. freeandequaldebate.org. <laughs> well played. Funny how you put that in there. Nice plug. Right. What was that so, URL again? Freeandequaldebate.org. RSVP now to view the debate live online. That's I think right. I'll go check that URL out right now. <laughs> You know, um, I'm actually hoping to have Christina Tobin on before that uh, that comes up so that she can talk about that debate even more. Because as I said to people earlier, um, there are a lot of people in the activist groups who are interested in, in protesting the vote by not voting. And I'm like, no, that, that's that's precisely what the establishment would want you to do. You want to protest vote. Vote for, like, Rocky Anderson or Stein or Gary, you know, or Gary Johnson or, you know, even the – you know, if you're one of those uh, Christian conservative types. You know, you, you've even got a Constitution Park candidate to choose from. Anything. Virgil, come on. His name's Virgil Good. You can say it, Neil. Okay, Virgil Good. <laughs> but I don't know. It just anyway. Um, what I was going to say is, you know, anything but Barack Obama or or Mitt Romney is a protest vote. Not voting at all. That's actually what the one percent counts on: is us not voting. That's why they're doing things, to try to make it harder for us to vote. That's what Real ID Act and all that other crap is about. They've even admitted it, but I talked about that in a different show. So, um, In any case, uh, we have another article. I'm going to go into this one. And um, Foxconn fiasco. Apple supplier admits using child labor in China. Foxconn, a major Apple supplier, has a, and Apple computers, obviously, not fruit, has admitted to using underage interns in factories in China, employing children as young as 14. It's the latest in a string of scandals surrounding the company's activity in country. This is at, uh, sourced at Russia Today, by the way. Um, the violation was revealed during a Foxconn probe over various media reports, which said that the interns from 14 to 16 were working at the plant in the eastern Shandong province for about three weeks. The company's administration admitted in a statement that their investigation has shown that the interns in question had worked in, the, in that campus for approximately three weeks. The employers were, in fact, breaching national law, which states the working age starts at 16. China's official Xinhua uh, news agency, including an unnamed government official, reported that there were about 56 underage interns and that they would be brought back to their schools. Taiwan-based Foxconn is the large contract, um, largest contract electronics maker in the world, cons constituting about 40% of the global market and provides supplies for Samsung and Sony, as well as Apple. Folks for NGO China Labor Bulletin Jeffrey Crothall uh, said in a statement that interns were a, quote, cheap and convenient source of labor, with uh, which vocal vocational schools eagerly and easily provide for international employers. Foxconn, meanwhile, pointed out that they have found, quote, no evidence of similar violations in any other campuses in China. However, the company representatives stressed that they will not hesitate to take immediate action on any campus if any violations are discovered. Controversy has been stirring around the major electronics supplier since the series of suicides on their plants across China in 2010 which human rights activists blamed on tough working conditions. In May last year, a blast at Foxconn's factory in Chengdu in southwest China killed two people and injured 16 more. 
On several occasions, workers staged riots over living conditions for migrant employees at the Foxconn plants. Earlier this October, thousands took to the streets to rally over two labor disputes concerning proud product quality and the demands that the employee, employees work during a national holiday. In response to the outrage, the company has pledged to cut overtime to less than nine hours a week instead of the current 20 hours. Jesus. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, anyway, um, Daniel, you go first. Well, um, wow, where do, I, where do I begin? Let's see. Uh, um, well, honestly, the bottom line is the bottom line. You know, it's the profit motive that's kind of guiding this. Um, there's no surprise there, really. Um, I'm, I don't mean to gratuitously bash my own country, but, you know, I consider my country to be a nation controlled by big business money, and I don't see why it shouldn't be that way in China. Um, they, you know, I kind of think they've been taking pages out of our old book, um, particularly with the disregard for ethics and the well-being of the people. But I'm fairly sure some of these politicians in China who was anonymous, the one that was talking about it, you know, they get paid off just like ours are here. And the indignation probably that's expressed there is really not sincere. Um, I'm kind of at a point in my life where I wouldn't be surprised uh, if we did things like that here, particularly with our farms, and we're just better at covering it up. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a well-recognized criminal act to do such a thing and as far as the the uh the the working conditions being so bad there that people were killing themselves i remember reading an article several years ago about that and what they did to prevent that was to uh build nets <laughs> you know to the, the people if they were going to kill themselves they wouldn't at least be doing it by jumping out the window like some of them were were doing <laughs> um oh, man. but and, and that's 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 terribly sad and for them to be there in the first place the economic and the work conditions have to be such that people are willing to do that to try to survive you know and and it's a when you have that kind of an environment and i hate to be so cynical but it's it's good for business to be that way and it's sad chris <laughs> Sorry, we had a noisy environment going on over here, so I turned on my microphone for a second. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, apparently I get one joke uh, every time I go, I come on here. It's uh, this joke brought to you by PepsiCo. Uh, Americans who are enjoying, you know, an under 35 un real unemployment rate of something approaching 25% and Spain, which is approaching 50% in the under 30s or whatever, uh, I suggest to them that they might think these jobs are attractive in the future, that, uh, you know, maybe all this uh, uh, advanced pottery courses they took in, in college aren't going to be paying off as well as uh, some of these kids coming up in China who are already working a uh, full two weeks every week. Uh, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I am noticing instead the dichotomy that it's uh, very easy for uh Chad in Dakota to sit there and look at their iPhones and lament the terrible, terrible conditions that uh, <laughs> that are facing the Chinese children while at the same time they go to Hunger Games and not recognize that it's a prophecy for their own lives. <laughs> well said. Ray? Well, uh, let's just 
chalk it all up to American consumerism. You know, America has led the way in uh, so many things since its inception. They've also led the way to the most destructive and consumerist lifestyle that the planet has ever known. So, um, you know, we need to take great responsibility for uh, the fact that we're we're uh, our continued ignorance, as Chris so eloquently put, that we, uh, you know, we sit on our high-speed broadband with our iPhones and and lament all the poor suffering. Um, you know, it's going to take a little more than that than than to to start making a difference. It's going to take really taking a look at um, the story of how that works, or should we say, the story of stuff, Neil. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it really is. It really is an interesting study when you look at the cycle of, of products. Um, where they come from, uh, and the fact when you start to realize that, yeah, there really were guys sitting around figuring out how to make people consumers so that they used increasingly more stuff so that the cycle, the system continued to generate more and more stuff so they continued to increase profits, and that was all it was simply about. So uh, if we want to we want to really start changing working conditions and take that seriously, it's going to take more than um, – than, uh, coming on and talking on the radio and, um, you know, praying for them. If you're, uh, if you're a Virgil good fan, um, (laughs) you're going to have to actually change your lifestyle Americans. And that's a tough pill to swallow, but, um, consumerism is not good for the planet. And that's just something we're going to, if, if luckily the American population is only what 15% of the planet, because if it was, if it was a hundred percent of the planet, there would be no planet left. Right, and now, also, I guess, kind of bringing it back to the the thing that I see here is like, you know, they're like, oh, we got caught with our pants down, you know, uh, they caught us, you know, using child labor again, and you know, it almost makes me wonder if it was an experiment, you know, like to see, you know, okay, can we get away with child labor again? You know, I, I mean, I know it's been a long time since the labor unions, like, you know, did away with that forever ago, um, and more to the point, you know, kind of playing off of what Chris said. It's as if we're trying, you know, as if we are being conditioned. This is the point that I, I got into an argument with some idiot on uh, one of Aaron Hawkins's videos, Storm Clouds Gatherings video. Um, in the comment section, the guy was saying, you know, well, if sweatshops weren't evil, were evil, then why are these people working there? Why don't they just go work somewhere else? And I'm like, okay, because there isn't anywhere else. Sure. You know, he's like, no, no, well, there's no, there, no, there, there's got to be somewhere else. I'm like, then why are they working there? You know, like, well, uh, 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 I'm like, yeah, right, dude, chicken or the egg, come on, you know, and then he's like, oh, no, what I, what I actually said was there was nowhere better to work, and I'm like, you're not really selling the idea that sweatshop labor is okay. You know, you, you are missing certain critical elements. <laughs> yeah, know, well, you probably have to include, when it comes to places like China, especially, that uh, the government in cahoots with big American money came in and took up the farmland where their family had lived for generations, uh, built a big factory on it, and they had nowhere to live anymore. And the only thing they could do was go work in that factory. Right. And then in some of these other countries, like the South American ones, um, and, you know, basically the IMF, you know, like the – it all starts with the stuff that the economic hitman talked about in Zeitgeist Addendum, which is basically that, you know, they go in, um, undercut and destroy a local economy – buy up the land rights for pennies on the dollar, and then they have a small army of, you know, ready and willing sweatshop laborers who are, well, of course, more interested in working in a sweatshop than, say, starving to death. 
You know, it's like they they leave out the fact that these situations are created. They're engineered. They don't happen by accident. You know, and the fact that, you know, what we're being told by, you know, back when Lou Dobbs was reporting on outsourcing forever ago was that we supposedly are the problem and we have to have a better, better work ethic and that we have to be more competitive. You know, that's what I kept screaming at the, the screen when I was listening to Romney telling us that we need to be more um, attractive to employers. And I'm like, yeah, you, okay, well, you know all about that. We heard about it in the video where you talked about how your company, Bain Capital, uh, you know, uh, outsourced to a place where women are packed like 12 to a room into these, you know, barrack-like conditions, and you have to set up guard towers and barbed wire to keep everybody out because they're so desperate to work. Yeah, that would make us more attractive. And what does that mean? Well, that means massive, hardcore poverty. Yeah, that's what it means. That's the only thing that's going to create that situation. Like, my friend Alberto from uh, Mexico when he did his Mexico show, pointed out that they're outsourcing out of Mexico now because even Mexicans are not desperate enough for them. You know, and, and what do they have their eye on? Africa. You know, all those starving and, you know, distended, you know, uh, stomached, you know, children look like an excellent place to send the next sweatshops to because those people are definitely desperate. And that's, I think, you know, where the problems really lie. And it's one of the reasons why when some Mesian types just say to me, you know, and that's this is the argument I got into with that guy who called himself Lady Addis or whatever. You know, he said, well, according to history, wages will increase with productivity. History proves this. Like he was talking about it like it was a law of physics, that the wages will increase. And I'm like, that's not what's going on on the earth. Maybe that was what was going on before. It's not anymore. They're trying to find the lowest possible wages they could find. Well, wage, wages have classically increased, uh, but so it's uh, not kept up with inflation, of course. Oh, yeah. right. Well, yeah, and then there are some people that now have jobs who didn't have any, and now they're living like plantation slaves rather than starving. So, yeah, there's a there's a wage increase. Yeah, and, and they're doing this to remain competitive. Right. Continue, Ray? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the old trickle-down economics theory that, uh, uh, yeah, there's a little something trickles down every now and then. Right. Trickles down. Um, that is once the once the big wigs have all the money and, and houses and cars and boats and corporations and government officials in their pocket that they could possibly have. Uh, every now and then they'll create a job or two. For sure, for sure. Well, guys, we're down to the last three minutes. Um, uh, Ray, would you like to give out the URL of that free and equal election thing again? <laughs> yeah, in all seriousness, um, you know, if you if you understand the farce of the. Uh, the Democrips and Rebloodlikins, as Jesse Ventura would say, um, and that these guys are just uh, two sides of the same coin and that the debates that have been going on are really uh, not addressing any of the important issues. And you want to be part of something that really can make a difference and start showing, uh, uniting people together, uh, showing the powers that be how serious people are about hearing some real information in our debates. Um, you know, there are four amazing and terrific presidential candidates running that will be on the ballot in your state, most likely, and you ought to take a look at what they have to say, and for no other reason than just hearing um, what the real issues that face this nation at this time are, and that's that's happening. Uh, due to some hard work of some activists, these things are coming together. Larry King, God, God bless him, uh, in his in his later years, he seems to have uh, struck a, a, a chord of conscience 
and has um, you know decided to be part of this thing. Uh, so he'll be moderating this debate. Um, it should be really terrific. I encourage everybody to really get out. If you want to RSVP so you can watch it live online, do so as soon as you can at freeandequaldebate.org. That's freeandequaldebate.org. All right. I want to thank everybody for being on again. Thank you, uh, Chris. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Ray. Thank Neil. Ray, Daniel. And um, it is now getting to be that time again, folks. It is the 20th of the month, and the donations have been pretty light this month. If you guys like what you're hearing and you'd like me to continue these efforts with V-Radio, please check out my website and consider a donation. Uh, With that said, I am going to give you a profanity warning because here comes George Carlin. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. Never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pocket. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. 
It's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio.